This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, sometimes I growl, shake myself, and spatter a few red drops for history to remember. Then I forget. I am the people, the mob. Carl Sandburg wrote those words about the Chicago race riots of 1919. We'll talk about that event and the things that led up to it with our guest, Claire Hartfield. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Claire Hartfield. She received her bachelor's from Yale University and her law degree from the University of Chicago. As a lawyer, she specialized in school desegregation litigation. More recently, she's been involved in setting up policy and creating programs in a charter school on Chicago's west side, which is predominantly African-American. She heard stories of the 1919 race riot from her grandmother, who lived in the Black Belt in Chicago at the time, and she was moved to share the history with younger generations. And so we'll be talking about her recent book, A Few Red Drops, The Chicago Race Riot of 1919, which just recently won the 2019 Coretta Scott King Award and was an L.A. Times Book Prize finalist. Claire Hartfield, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you for having me. So my wife, Kira, and I are new to Chicago. We moved here in 2013, and we've both remarked to one another that we have this epiphany that happens every once in a while, where we will be driving from one neighborhood to another, and we will take a route that we haven't normally taken, and we'll turn a corner, and suddenly two pieces of our mental maps will snap together, and we'll get a bigger sense of what the city is and how the city is put together. In reading your book, A Few Red Drops, The Chicago Race Riot of 1919, I had that experience on almost every page where pieces that I thought that I knew of the city's history were slamming together for me and filling in gaps. I think it's an amazing book, and I'm so excited to talk to you about it. So let me take, a first of all, a step back and just ask, what was it that led to you writing a book about this particular history at this particular time? Yeah. So I have spent my entire career working to provide equal educational opportunity for all children. And as part of that, when I had my own kids when they were young and I was reading a lot to them, I began to notice that there were gaps in the literature for young people. And so when they were very little, I wrote a picture book about an African-American collage artist, and it talked about using art to tell story. And that was something that hadn't been done before. And then I went back to the jobs that you mentioned in the in the headlines. Thank you very much. And I was... so. I'll backtrack a little. When I was a child myself, very young, my grandmother lived in Chicago. I grew up in Chicago, and I used to go and visit her about once a week. And it was one of the highlights of my childhood, and I remember it really clearly because she was a great storyteller, and I was a pretty quiet child, and so I absorbed and soaked in everything that she was telling me. 
And most of her stories were about her young, glamorous days of what she called being a bachelor girl. But she told me one story that happened shortly after she moved to Chicago. She had been born in the South, in Mississippi. And she had moved to Chicago, and she had gotten herself an apartment in the Black Belt, and she would gotten herself a job in the industrial community. And one hot July day, she boarded the streetcar to come home from work. And as she got closer and closer to her home in the Black community, she looked out the window and she saw all these young men fighting in the streets. And they were Black men and white men. And they were fighting very vehemently. And when they saw the streetcar, they turned and started throwing rocks at the streetcar. And so everybody was panicking. The driver decided that it was unwise to stop at any of the regular stops. So he took them all the way to the end of the line, which was fairly far from her home. And then he made everybody get out. And of course, there was no Uber back then. And so all of these people, including my grandmother, had to walk home through this violence. And so she told me this story, and it made a big impression on me. But I did tuck it back into my memory. I didn't think about it for many, many years. And then several years ago, I was watching CNN news, and I saw images of people once again out in the streets. It wasn't a riot. People were protesting the killing of in, in Ferguson, Missouri, of an African-American young man named Michael Brown. And it's funny how sometimes your memory does these amazing things for you. And up came this story into my mind of what my grandmother had told me. And I thought, I wonder what was going on back then. And I wanted to find out more about it and to figure out, is this really different than what we're going through today? Or is it the same? And so I began to do the research. And as I did that, I realized that there were so many echoes today and that there isn't a book for young people about this as young people go through it. And I thought this was a great opportunity to share this story to give some context to the things that we are dealing with today. And I must say that as the father of young children, my daughter is nine, my son is about to be eight. As I was turning these pages, I as an adult was learning. And so it's a beautifully put together book and it's very informative for adult readers. But I thought about how well it had been put together and how much I wanted to share it with my own children. So I'm happy to know that that was your intention because that rang out. Like this is something that I could share with my children to help them understand what the history of the city that they're growing up in is. Well, that's great news to me. And I've had other feedback like that, which warms my heart, because a lot of what I know about my city and about the world was passed down to me from generation to generation, either from my grandmother or from my own parents. So I'm a big believer in intergenerational discussion. And one of the hopes that I have with this book is, as you say, not only for young adults to read it, but also older adults. And to engage in a discussion, it's a tool, I think, for talking about and really kind of getting into some of the issues that we're dealing with today. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking with Claire Hartfield about her amazing recent book, A Few Red Drops, The Chicago Race Riot of 1919. Well, the catalyst moment for the book, the thing that, if you will, and I'm scare quoting this, sort of started the Chicago race riot of 1919 was an event that happened between 27th and 29th Street beaches on July 27th, 1919. So as a way of entering into the conversation, and there's a lot more to talk about than just this one event, but let's get the stage set. So paint for us what happened that day and what was going on 
in the, if you will, the gray area between 27th and 29th Street beaches here yeah, in Chicago. Yeah. So t- July 27th was an exceptionally hot day in Chicago. And those of us who have lived here for a long time have experienced those very, very hot, hot, humid days. It was in the 90s. But back in 1919, there was no air conditioning. There were, Many people didn't have fans, even certainly not electric fans. That was for the middle and upper class. And so people would throw open their windows. But you know, when it's humid and hot, the air is just sticky and it's hard to breathe in. And so most people went outside. And of course, in Chicago, we are very fortunate to have this beautiful lakefront and the water to cool off with. And even the Tribune, ironically, that day had a two-page full spread telling people, come to the beaches. And so people came. Now, in Chicago, there was no official segregation like there was in the South, but there was a lot of unofficial segregation going on. It just it was just known by everyone. There were many what I call invisible lines between the races, and the beaches were like that. So there was a beach at 26th Street designated for black swimmers, and there was a beach at 29th Street designated for white swimmers, and people adhered to that for the most part. So that day on July 27th, five black teenagers set out for the beach that they were supposed to go to. They had built themselves a raft, and they didn't know how to swim very well, but when they held onto the raft, they could kick their legs and and move, and it was great fun. And so they did that, and what they did was as they were out in the water, the currents carried them over this invisible line without their noticing it. There was a white man standing on the beach designated for whites and saw them and he was infuriated. And so he began throwing rocks at them out in the water. At first they thought it was a game, but then one of the rocks hit one of the boys on the forehead, knocked him off the raft under the water, and his friends tried to save him, but they couldn't and he drowned. And so this was a tragic event in and of itself, but it also was just a powder keg going off for a lot of tensions that had been building for quite a long time. And so it exploded from there. And in the process of explosion, these young men, and they were 16, 17 years old? Yes. Yeah. These young men, they were at first, they wanted to tell the story of what happened, but they were also afraid to be implicated. And I love in the book because they were afraid of getting in trouble with their parents because they weren't supposed to be at that beach in the first place. Right. That was uh, one of the kids, in fact, who was later interviewed. He, no one, none of these children talked about this event until much, much later. But one of them, finally, when he was an adult, talked about it. And they had basically had a pact between themselves that they wouldn't talk about it, partly for the very innocent reason that they thought they'd get in trouble with their parents. But I'm sure they were also aware from the newspapers and from stories in the black community that sometimes when things went wrong, black people could be implicated for the tragedies or crimes that occurred. And the best thing to do was to stay away from that. And in fact, so we'll get into more of this in the second segment, but how long did this riot last? It, it began on a on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon? It did on a Sunday afternoon, and it lasted for an entire week, day in, day out. 38 people ended up being killed. Over 500 people were injured, some of them quite seriously. And the third thing that sometimes in riots people don't think about is that over a million dollars of 1919 money damage was done primarily by arson and bombings of homes in the communities that were at the center of the riot. 
And so we'll get into all of this as our conversation continues. But for now, let's take a break. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Claire Hartfield about her recent book, a wonderful new book called A Few Red Drops, The Chicago Race Riot of 1919. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Claire Hartfield about her recent book, A Few Red Drops, The Chicago Race Riot of 1919. Before the break, we were talking about the catalyzing event, a rock hitting a young man of 16, 17 years old at the no man's land, if you will, between 26th and 29th Street beaches on Chicago's lakeshore. And that set off a week's worth of rioting here in Chicago in 1919. But in your book, A Few Red Drops, once you establish that set of events, you then pull back the focus, and we we see not just that moment, but the 75 years of history almost that led up to it, from the Civil War to the First World War, and some of the racial, the religious, the class, and the gender tensions that led to this event and helped, as you said, to sort of add fuel to the powder keg. So let's take each of those in turn. First of all, let's talk about some of the the class tensions that were there in Chicago in the 60, 70 years before that event in 1919. Yes. So one thing to point out about this riot, and it was true of many, many riots back during that time, is that these riots were most often started by white young men, not black young men. And that is the case here as well. And we can get into it more. But there were over 1,300 gangs in Chicago at the time of 1919. And some of them were really glorified boys clubs where they had tomato fights and built forts and those kinds of things. But others of them were much more serious, and they were tied in with Chicago politicians. And one of those gangs, which was called Reagan's Colts, which was from a poor Irish immigrant neighborhood, was very territorial. And they had built up amazing tensions with the African-American community. And in the months before the riot, were looking for some, a catalyst which they could take advantage of to foment violence. And so this event on the beach was that catalyst, and they proceeded from there. So I took a look back at this immigrant community and tried to understand what was going on with them. And there are two different communities that are looked at in the book. One is the Irish community, and one is the Eastern European community. Uh, the Irish community Many of them came over early in the 1840s and 50s after the Great Famine in Ireland. And then the Eastern Europeans came because of repression later, in the later 1800s. When the Irish Catholics came over, and this is the class 
issue and also the religious issue ties into this. What had happened to them, they had lived very oppressed, in oppressed conditions in Ireland where their Protestant landlords kept them living in very, very bad conditions. They came over to the United States partly because of that oppression, but partly with some hope that things would be better for them. And what they found was that the discrimination against working-class Catholics continued over here in the United States. And this is crosses over into the racial issue as well, was that they struggled to do whatever they could to not be on the bottom rung. And so there were even, as I talk about in the books, there were connections made by the middle and upper classes between the Irish and the African-Americans, and that was something that the Irish very, very much did not want because they wanted to maintain a little bit higher status on the ladder. And so there, an animosity grew up there from the very beginning of when they came to Chicago. So what you do so well in your book, A Few Red Drops, is you show how when these Irish Catholics came over, they were excluded from jobs, any jobs but the most low entry of jobs. And so they got started in the stockyards and, and those sorts of things. And then when they began to organize, because they were sort of economically isolated, they were some of the first union people in some ways. They were. Yeah. Um, and this caused them then to have, it wasn't just that they had a, a, a racial consciousness, but they were trying to band together for their own economic well-being. They were, for sure. And one of the invisible lines that was there at that time was that, as you said, the European immigrant community that didn't have specific skills, when they came over, they were given industrial jobs, working class industrial jobs. When African Americans came to Chicago, they were locked out of those jobs until World War I. And so there really wasn't that much focus by the immigrant community on the African American community because they weren't butting heads over economics at that time. When World War I came, that changed. And that was when the working class immigrant community had to start dealing with the African American migrant community. And issues about the unions and about joining the unions became front and center and caused a lot of tension between those two groups. One of the things that came clear to me and that I learned from in your book, and let me see if I've got this right. So when we look at the various white communities in Chicago, we see class animosity and we see religious animosity. So the well-to-do Protestants are allied against the Irish Catholics, for example. When we look instead at the African-American community, instead of antagonism between the classes, you talk about sort of three distinct classes of African-Americans, those that are sort of on the lowest economic rung and those like Ida Wells and others who are in a, a much higher if we will, class situation, what I saw in the African-American community was solidarity across those class lines to try and help to raise the entire plight of the African-American community into a better economic situation. Now, first of all, have I read the book correctly? Is, is that a contrast between the sort of white classes and the African-American classes in Chicago at that time? There is, and, and but the reason for that has to do with the issue of race. So that for Working for white people, the main issue, the main focus, the main desire in terms of becoming fully American was to move up the economic ranks. And when they did, and there were some, for example, Irish Americans who came and started out in the stockyards, worked their way up, 
And when they did, they were able to move out of that poor community and to move into middle-class communities and to assimilate into the greater white society. African-Americans, though, did not have that choice because even those who were well-off economically had great restrictions imposed on them in terms of how they lived their lives. So, for example, a middle-class or upper-middle-class black person could not say to themselves, I'm moving out of this poorer community. They were confined to what was designated for all African Americans. And so, and that was the same in terms of what they could do in terms of things for fun. It was in in terms of where they could go and do their banking and all other kinds of things that we think of as very important pieces of our society. And so what the black community did in the early days was they built a city within a city because they didn't have the choice of moving out of that area that was designated for them. And they decided to make it the best that they could. And so they built their own set of institutions, banks, They had social service system, a pretty strong social service system that they built for themselves, recreational activities. And so one writer who wrote quite a while ago titled this Black Metropolis, because if you look at the map and you drew a line around the black area and looked within it, you would see all of the societal pieces that were present for white society in the greater Chicago area. And then when World War I came along, there were a series of things that happened that changed the black community's response to being restricted. And those are the things that really hiked up the tensions between the nearby white immigrant community, working class community, and the black community. So there was an all-African-American regiment, for example, that was recruited and that went overseas to fight in World War I. And fought and died for the country and then came back and realized that even though they had given their all for the United States, the United States still wanted to see them as not fully human, not fully citizens. Yes. And I think when you give, when you put your life on the line, and President Wilson, when he talked about why the United States was getting into World War I, famously said to make the world free for all. And this word freedom meant something particularly strongly to the black community. So people in the black community were very enthusiastic about being patriotic and and playing their role in making the world free under the assumption that this would change the rules back here at home and that it would make them free. And many of them fought very, very bravely. Some of them died. Some of them came back and were quite disillusioned when they came back to see that the freedom overseas was not translating to freedom for them back at home. And what happened at that time was they developed a new black consciousness. Instead of going back and saying, all right, we're happy to stick here in this restrictive environment, they began to say, no, I have done my part as an American, not just an African-American, but an American, and I'm going to do what my part here to ensure that the country includes me as an equal citizen. During the 1880s to the, I'd say, 1916, there were some African Americans who were more well-to-do that came up to the North, what we refer to sometimes colloquially as the Talented Tenth. They were people who had 
some financial wherewithal to begin with. Many of them were entrepreneurs. There were two things that black people could do at that time in society here in terms of jobs. They could be in the service industry. So many of them worked as servants in rich people's homes or in restaurants and hotels downtown. And they were the black working class community, both the men and women in their households worked, and they were able to make enough to have a solid working class living. The other alternative was to become an entrepreneur and to build your own business. And that was the small group that became the black upper class. They built tailor businesses. They built barbershops. That became a big thing back then. And that group oversaw the building of institutions in the black community. And people who lived there were very proud of what they what they had. They realized that there were restrictions on them, but they were proud of what they had done to make a vibrant community within a community. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking with Claire Hartfield about her amazing recent book, A Few Red Drops. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Claire Hartfield about her recent book, A Few Red Drops, The Chicago Race Riot of 1919. Well, in your book, A Few Red Drops, it's not a central focal point of the story that you're telling, but all around the edges, there is the existence of and the influence of both churches and Christian organizations as part of this story that is the wider story of the Chicago race riot of 1919. I'd like to take a few minutes and sort of dive into that a little bit, if you're willing, to ask both about how some of the churches in Chicago played a role of support in these communities, but then also to talk specifically about the Young Men's Christian Association, the YMCA, and some of the racial tensions that were there in that organization. And in fact, why don't we start there with the the tensions in the YMCA between, if you will, the main YMCA in Chicago and the Wabash Street YMCA? Right. So the YMCA was just one example of what we've been talking about of the invisible lines and segregation in Chicago. So the YMCA downtown refused to admit black people to come and partake in their events. This was really a challenge. And as more and more African-Americans were moving into Chicago, there was really a need for a central social hub. And so some of the black leaders that we've talked about a little bit earlier were instrumental in coming up with an idea of building a YMCA in the black community. So this really ties into the whole duplication or replication of what's going on in the larger white Chicago and making a duplicate of that in black Chicago. So there was a YMCA that was built called the Wabash Street YMCA, which is a famous YMCA throughout the country, actually. And it became a central hub of social events, but also of social services. 
This particularly became important with the beginning of the Great Migration in 1916-1917 when the black population in Chicago doubled. So there were 50,000 new African Americans making their home in Chicago, moving up from the South in the two years that the United States participated in World War I. And the YMCA was central to that, as were the churches. The churches were important in both African-American community and in the European immigrant communities as a fundamental place for gathering and feeling the, the solidity of both the old community so that they could talk about the places they had lived before, and here was a community of people who shared that with them. So, for example, the Irish immigrants had their own churches, and they would have this bond, this tie of having lived in Ireland together. The African-American community had its own churches, and during the Great Migration, most of the people who migrated up to Chicago came from a few states in the central south. So Mississippi was a huge one. Louisiana was part of that. And so they had that common experience of living in Mississippi, for example, together. The other piece of it that was so important about the churches was that it drew them into the new culture and acclimated it for them. And here in the black community in the churches, some of the African-Americans who were old-time residents, became role models for the new, and they, and they worked through the churches to set up book clubs and sewing clubs and places where children could come and play sports to acclimate them into this new world because the, the world they lived in in the urban north was so different from the world that they had come from in the rural south. And so the churches were instrumental in making that transition. Now, one of the things that you note in your book, A Few Red Drops, is that these Catholic communities, so you talk about the, I forget the exact quotation, but you you quote someone as saying that uh, a Catholic could hear almost 16 different languages of service there in the early, in the early 19-teens. So there was the Irish church, which you've mentioned, but also the Polish church, the Lithuanian church, so many kind of balkanized Catholic churches. Was there antagonism between those various ethnic communities of Catholicism, or were they united by thinking, we're Catholics? Yeah, I think they were mostly united by thinking, we're Catholics. There really wasn't animosity. And in fact, the Irish community, because it had been there longer, and because many of them already spoke English, so they had a leg up on those who came from other countries. They also had a paternalistic role, and that worked within the Catholic community for the other European immigrants that came over. There were separate churches for the different communities for two reasons, I think. One is simply language. Many of them came over without knowing a word of English, and this was a way for them to be able to speak freely and learn English at the same time. And then the other piece of it is what I just mentioned, which is having the solid knowledge that here I am, I'm not here drifting on my own. It's just not just my family here in a sea of people that come from such a different experience. But no, here are people who have experienced my culture, and this is a place to dwell in it and to to be happy and break bread together. What's interesting to me is that in both of the examples that we're talking about, the the sort of immigrant churches that were mostly Catholic and also the Young Men's Christian Association, the YMCA, 
even though there is this identity of Christianity, there's animosity. So in the ethnic Catholic churches, they are bonded together in their Catholicism, partly because there's antagonism from the Protestant churches that were here before. Right. And in the case of the, the founding of the Wabash Street YMCA, they founded that because even though these African-Americans were Christians, they were not allowed at the Young Men's Christian Association. I'm curious about how we might think about the history of these kinds of religious antagonisms. We don't often talk about the religious aspect. We talk about the economic. We talk about the racial. We don't often talk about how religious animosity contributes to things like the Chicago race riot of 1919. What, what can we see in these antagonisms that really helped to add fuel to the fire to that conflagration that happened in that week of July 27, 1919? Well, in certain communities, there has always been religious oppression as a background. And you're right, we don't talk about it that way as much. And I think part of that is because currently in the United States, the difference between Protestants and Catholics is not the major religious issue. But if we look at what's going on right now with respect to Christians and Muslims, for example, we can see this tension and we can take a look at how, for example, is the Muslim community responding to that oppression? Part of what's going on is exactly the same thing that was going on back in 1919, which is gathering together in their own communities and their own places of worship so that they can have a place to have positive interactions and to be among people who appreciate their religion and don't look down upon it and to to enjoy the richness of it. If I can take what you've just said and expand upon it, if we also look at the migrants that are coming to our southern border, the majority of them are Catholic and a significant minority is evangelical. And yet because they are Christians of the wrong color, oftentimes Christians who are comfortable in our country will turn a blind eye or even turn a back on them. And it's similar to what we saw in microcosm in Chicago in the years leading up to 1919, isn't it? Yes. I think people, human beings in general, um, are always looking for ways to separate themselves. There's always some kind of caste system going on. And one of the interesting things that we have to look at in our society now, which was true then, is pulling apart those strands and being very clear about what's going on. Where is the religious discrimination? Where is the class discrimination? Where is the race discrimination? Sometimes they overlap. Sometimes they are conflated in a well-meaning way, but in, a, in an erroneous way. And we have to be very intentional in looking at what is really going on in the building of the caste systems that we have and how do we get rid of them then? Because if we know what's going on, then we can look much more precisely and effectively at, well, what can we do to erase these? And that's one of the things that your book, A Few Red Drops, shows so well that these communities were not motivated by a kind of jingoism. They weren't saying, well, we just want to stay with our own kind. But literally, the economics, the geography, the laws restricted the options that they had. And so they did the best that they could with what they, the hand that they were dealt. And uh, what, I, what I really appreciated about your book was how much it showed how those economic, those class, those racial tensions arose out of the interests of people like the the owners of the slaughterhouses like Swift and others who who had an interest in a kind of divide and conquer strategy against these underclass elements. Right. I think 
basically most people are trying to make a good life for themselves. And so even when there are restrictions, people find a way to make some bright spots in their community. And so, for example, the immigrant communities built these churches that were bright spots in their otherwise challenging lives. And the African-American community built separate institutions that were bright spots in their otherwise challenging lives. And so you can look at the human spirit, I think, and know that people will always find a way to make things bearable. At the same time, though, it's important to look at history and to say there are times, there are times when certain events come together where those bright spots that have been created without making waves no longer become tenable. And this is what I've referred to as cycles of complacency and convulsion. There are events that happen periodically in history which raise or change the consciousness of our society. And we find, if we look at that, that those are the times when the tensions come up to the surface and things that can sometimes cause violence are sparked. And these tensions have been underlying the fabric of society during the quieter years, but there's been more of a focus on let's make the best of it. And that eventually at some point becomes untenable. So we see that, for example, in the 1960s. There came a time period where it was no more. We're not going to do this. And we may be facing another time like that now. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in our final segment. But for now, we're going to take a break. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalton. We're speaking today with Claire Hartfield about her recent book, A Few Red Drops, The Chicago Race Riot of 1919. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers three or four segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Commonweal for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a longtime reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. You can find the Commonweal podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. That's commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Claire Hartfield about her recent book, A Few Red Drops, The Chicago Race Riot of 1919. When we talk about the Chicago Race Riot, it lasted for a week from a Sunday to a Sunday, there from July 27th, 1919 to the week following. And how many people died? 38. 38 people died and about 500 were wounded. Is that? Yes. All right. And so that was a full-on riot. Buildings got burned down. People were killed. We have a tendency in our present day and in our present media environment to really loosen the line between what might be considered a protest, people gathering, and maybe property being damaged with a riot. And so help me to understand how you would distinguish between something like what happened in 1919, which was an actual riot, and something that you mentioned earlier in our conversation, people taking to the streets for, say, the Black Lives Matter movement in the wake of the violence in Ferguson. 
Yes. The issue of what should be called a riot or not be called a riot is actually a, a pretty hot topic right now. And some people have the opinion that what happened in 1919 was not a riot. And so that's a, a whole topic that we could talk about for an hour. The distinction I make is that in 1919, there was an intent within the communities in, that were in what is now Bridgeport to foment violence. Whereas in, say, Ferguson, Missouri, the intent was to protest inequity that's going on. And so there was not an intention to go into the streets and start beating up and killing people. There was an intent to mass together and to say, we are not going to take this anymore. And so that's how I would make that distinction. In both instances, there's the potential for violence. And that is where emotions rise so high that one media outlet may characterize it as one thing and another media outlet may characterize it as another. The media in itself is, a, is an interesting topic. Even back in 1919 during the riot, if you looked at the Chicago Tribune, you would get a very different characterization of what was going on than if you looked at the Chicago Defender, which was the African-American newspaper. And the same thing is true today. If you look at one media outlet, you're going to get a very different characterization of what happened, say, in Ferguson, Missouri, than if you look at another media outlet. One of the things that I think is more challenging now is that there are so many media outlets and there are there's also much more opportunity for individuals who don't have the facts to express their opinions out in the general public. And so it becomes more difficult to know what's going on. But even back then in 1919, just as an example, when the two groups, the white community and the black community who had been lazing out on the beach, went back to their various communities, they started spreading stories about what had happened. In the black community, the story was that a police officer had held a gun on people who wanted to go into the water and to try to save the boy who had drowned. That wasn't true. That was a hyperbole. In the white community, there were rumors going around that actually the boy who had drowned was white and the person who had killed him was black. That wasn't true. That kind of misinformation is magnified now, that, and it gets to people so quickly now because of technology and so in some ways, the potential for emotions to be ratcheted up now is even higher than what it was 100 years ago. Well, if we look at the history, so 1919, we have this week-long riot in Chicago. We go forward 50 years and we have another riot in Chicago where the South Side burns in the wake of the murder of Dr. Martin Luther King and others during the civil rights movement. And now 100 years on, we still have these racial tensions that are very present with us. What lessons should we carry forward from the Chicago race riot of 1919 into our present day? Oh, that's that's a very weighty topic. One of the things that was a key, uh, a key factor in both the European immigrant community and the African-American community was segregation. And one of the things that I mentioned in the book as a brief intro to that issue of segregation is that here were two communities that were side by side. There was no highway, actually. There was no Dan Ryan between them at that time. And so they literally could have stepped across the street and been in the other's community. And so it created an opportunity 
for all sorts of positive interaction. But instead, that line, that street, was declared a deadline over which particularly the African-American community was not supposed to cross unless they were crossing it to go to work in the stockyards. And I think we are grappling now in our society with the really, really negative effects of segregation. And I think at the root of everything else, that's the issue that we need to get right and that we need to do differently than we've done in the past. We need to figure out ways to get rid of the polarization, to have people getting to know each other, talking to each other, living together, because some of the issues that relate to economics, if it's your community and my community, and we both want that community to prosper, we're going to work on it together. Whereas if your community is in one place and my community is in another, it's so much easier to just focus on our own individual communities and not really to put our efforts into the city as a whole. And so in the wake of having worked on this subject, the Chicago race riot of 1919, what is it that still frustrates you? Well, this issue of segregation and polarization, um, and I think we're seeing more polarization now than ever, is something that is challenging to deal with, I think. People tend to get into their own bubbles, and there's a tendency to dismiss without really thinking it through ideas that, that are different from your own. And so that's something that's a challenge. I'm an optimistic person in general. Just living here in Hyde Park, for example, every day when I walk out my door, I see all sorts of different kinds of people. I go to coffee shops and hear all sorts of different kinds of conversations. People really listening to each other across experience and across culture. And so I also hear outside of this little bubble of Hyde Park, I hear a lot of people in communities that are more segregated really wanting to change that and maybe not knowing how. But I think as we move forward, I am hopeful per personally, not that I didn't like our old mayor, but we have a new mayor who has a different way of looking at things and it's too early to tell what that will mean, but I am hopeful. She talks about recognizing and seeing communities that have been unheard for a long time and bringing that into the citywide consciousness so that all of us can be aware of and reach out and extend a hand to those who are not just like us. Claire Hartfield, this was such an amazing book. Your book, A Few Red Drops, as I said at the top of the show, I learned on every page. It helped me to understand the city that I love better and its history. Thank you for writing it, and thank you so much for taking a few minutes to talk with me and my listeners about it today. Oh, my pleasure. We've been speaking today with Claire Hartfield. She received her bachelor's from Yale University and her law degree from the University of Chicago. As a lawyer, she specialized in school desegregation litigation. We've been talking today about her recent book, A Few Red Drops, The Chicago Race Riot of 1919. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. 
Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.